Book Three, Part Eight of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Three, Part Eight, October Fourth to October Nineteenth, eighteen sixty-two. October 4th, Saturday. While Anna and Miriam went out riding last evening, just as I put down my pen, I went out for a solitary walk down the road that Gibbs would have to pass, but saw nothing of the carriage. When I got back, they told me he was wounded. My fears were well founded then. With what anxiety we waited for his coming it would be impossible to describe. Every wagon rattling through the fields made us stop and listen. Every cane-stalk waving in the moonlight brought us to our feet. At last, after supper, far off in the clear light we saw the carriage. I could not sit still. I walked down the steps and stood under the tree in front, followed by Anna. I did not like her to stand nearer the spot where it would stop than I, even. All the rest remained on the balcony. We did not know how serious the wound might be. We must be careful. Eugene Carter advised caution for more reasons than one. Look out, he cried. Suppose it should be Colonel Bro. Then I am afraid the Colonel will get a kiss, I answered nervously, shuffling from one foot to the other. "'But suppose it is Mr. M.' he persisted. "'Oh, thank you for the caution. I will look carefully before I greet him,' I returned, moving to the other side, for nearer around the circle moved the carriage. I heard his voice. "'Oh, Gibbs, where is it?' "'Left shoulder, mere scratch,' he answered. The carriage stopped. "'Gibbs, Gibbs!' I cried. "'My darling!' and he had his great strong arm around me. The left was hanging in a sling. Slowly the others moved down the steps towards him. What a meeting! My heart was in my throat, I was so happy. Everyone caught the well hand and kissed him again and again, and everyone shrunk from that left side. I had almost forgotten my gear Lygia in my excitement. We followed him on the balcony and put him in a chair near the steps. I pulled off his hat and coat and knelt in front of him with my arms across his lap to get near enough. Miriam stood on the steps with his arm around her shoulder and Lydia near. The others stood around. Altogether it was a happy group that performed in the tableau of The Soldier's Return. Presently the Negroes gathered too. "'How is you, Mass Gibbs?' in all imaginable keys and accents was heard, while the captain shook hands with each and inquired into their own state of health. But even wounded soldiers can eat, so supper was again prepared. I am afraid it gave me too much pleasure to cut up his food. It was very agreeable to butter his cornbread, carve his mutton, and spread his preserves.' but I doubt whether it could be so pleasant to a strong man, accustomed to do such small services for himself. We listened to him talk, but though it was evident from his slow, deliberate speech, so different from his ordinary habit, that he was suffering, yet I felt impatient when he was interrupted by any commonplace observation by any one of us. 
I wanted to learn something of his exploits. Much knowledge I obtained. He was wounded at Sharpsburg on the 17th September at nine in the morning. That is all the information I got concerning himself. One would imagine that the seventeen months that have elapsed since we last met had been passed in a prolonged picnic. Concerning others, he was quite communicative. Father Hubert told him he had seen George in the battle, and he had come out safe. Gibbs did not even know that he was in it until then. Our army, having accomplished its object, recrossed the Potomac after what was decidedly a drawn battle. Both sides suffered severely. Hardly an officer on either side escaped unhurt. Mr. McGimsey is wounded, and Major Heron reported killed. I expect the list will contain the names of many friends when it comes. I have just come from seeing Gibbs's wound dressed. If that is a scratch, heaven defend me from wounds. A minier ball struck his left shoulder strap, which caused it to glance, thereby saving the bone. Just above, in the fleshy part, it tore the flesh off in a strip three inches and a half by two. Such a great, raw, green, pulpy wound, bound around by a heavy red ridge of flesh. Mrs. Badger, who dressed it, turned sick. Miriam turned away groaning. Servants exclaimed with horror. It was the first experience of any except Mrs. Badger in wounds. I wanted to try my nerves, so I held the towel around his body and kept the flies off while it was being washed. He talked all the time, ridiculing the groans of sympathy over a scratch, and oh how I loved him for his fortitude. It is so offensive that the water trickling on my dress has obliged me to change it. October 6th Last night I actually drew from Gibbs the outlines of Jackson's campaign. He told me of some heroic deeds of his fellow-soldiers, but of his own not a word. I have seen his name too often in the papers to believe that he has no deeds of his own to relate, if he only would. October ninth, Thursday it is astonishing what a quantity of fresh air has been consumed by me since I formed that wise resolution. The supply must be largely increased to keep up with the demand. Perhaps that is the cause of all these clouds and showers. I must be making a severe drain on the economy of heaven. From breakfast to dinner I remain on the balcony and read aloud several chapters of the Memoirs of Dumas by way of practice. A dictionary lies by me, and I suffer no word to pass without a perfect definition. Then comes my French grammar, which I study while knitting or sewing, which takes very nearly until dinner-time. After that I do as I please, either reading or talking, until sunset when we can ride or walk, the walk being always sweetened with sugar-cane. The evening we always spend on the balcony. Is that grand air enough? Au montain, je serai joliment brune. We three girls occupy the same room since Gibbs's arrival, and have ever so much fun and not half enough sleep. I believe the other two complain of me as the cause, but I plead not guilty. I never was known to laugh aloud, no matter how intense might have been my mirth. 
It won't come, as Gibbs murmured last night while reading aloud Artemis Ward's last letter, when we discovered it was suppressed laughter rather than suppressed pain that caused him to writhe so. On the other hand, Anna and Miriam laugh as loud and lustily as daughters of the Titans, if the respectable gentleman had daughters. I confess to doing more than half the talking, but as to the laugh that follows, not a bit. Last night I thought they would go wild, and I too laughed myself into silent convulsions when I recited an early effusion of my poetic muse for their edification. Miriam made the bedstead prance fairly, while Anna's laugh sounded like a bull of Bashan with his head in a bolster case. Saturday, October 11th. Miriam went off to Clinton before daylight yesterday with Mr. Carter and Mrs. Worley. She would not let me go for fear mother should keep us. At midnight they got back last night, tired, sleepy, and half-frozen, for our first touch of cool weather came in a strong north wind in the evening, which grew stronger and stronger through the night, and they had worn only muslin dresses. I shall never cease to regret that I did not go, too. Miriam says mother is looking very sad. Sad, and I am trying to forget all our troubles, and am so happy here. Oh, mother, how selfish it was to leave you. I ask myself whether it were best to stay there, where we could only be miserable without adding anything to your comfort or pleasure, or to be here, careless and happy, while you are in that horrid hole so sad and lonesome. According to my theory, Miriam would remind me that I say it is better to have three miserable persons than two happy ones, whose happiness occasions the misery of the third. That is my doctrine only in peculiar cases. It cannot be applied to this one. I say that if, for example, Miriam and I should love the same person, while that person loved only me, rather than make her unhappy by seeing me marry him, I would prefer making both him and myself miserable by remaining single. She says, fudge, which means, I suppose, nonsense. But our happiness here does not occasion mother's unhappiness. She would rather see us enjoying ourselves here than moping there. One proof is that she did not suggest our return. She longs to get home, but cannot leave poor Lily alone, for Charlie is in Grenada. Oh, how willingly I would return to the old wreck of our home! All its desolation could not be half so unendurable as Clinton. But Lily cannot be left. Poor Lily, when I look at her sad young face, my heart bleeds for her. With five helpless little children to care for, is she not to be pitied? I think that such a charge in such dreadful days would kill me. How patiently she bears it. Thursday, October 16th. It seems an age since I have opened this book. How the time has passed since, I have but a vague idea, beyond that it has passed very pleasantly. Once since, I have been with Mrs. Badger to a Mr. Powell, who has started quite an extensive shoemaking establishment, in the vain attempt to get something to cover my naked feet. I am so much in need that I have been obliged to borrow Lydia's shoes every time I have been out since she returned. This was my second visit there, and I have no greater satisfaction than I had at first. 
He got my measure, I got his promise, and that is the end of it thus far. His son, a young man of about twenty-four, had the cap of his knee shot off at Baton Rouge. Ever since he has been lying on his couch unable to stand, and the probability is that he will never stand again. Instead of going out to the manufactory, Mrs. Badger has each time stopped at the house to see his mother, who, by the way, kissed me and called me Sissy, to my great amusement, and there I have seen this poor young man. He seems so patient and resigned that it is really edifying to be with him. He is very communicative, too, and seems to enjoy company, no matter if he does say hern and hisn wonder why he doesn't say shizen too the girls are highly amused at the description i give of my new acquaintance but still more so at mrs badger's account of the friendship of this poor young cripple and his enjoyment of my visits of course it is only her own version as she is very fond of jokes of all kinds night before last lydia got playing the piano for me in the darkened parlor and the old tunes from her dear little fingers sent me off in a sea of dreams she too caught the vision and launched off in a well-remembered quadrille the same scene flashed on us and at each note almost we would recall a little circumstance charming to us but unintelligible to anna who occupied the other side Together we talked over the dramatis personae. Mrs. Morgan, Jr., in a dark blue silk with black flounces, a crimson chenille net on her black hair, sits at the piano in her own parlor. On the Brussels carpet stands, among others, Her Majesty, Queen Miriam, in a lilac silk, with bare neck and arms save for the protection afforded by a bertha of appliqué lace trimmed with pink ribbon, with hair a la Madonna, and fastened low on her neck. Is she not handsome as she stands fronting the folding doors, her hand in tall Mr. Trezevant's, just as she commences to dance, with the tip of her black bottine just showing? Vis-à-vis -vis stands pretty Sophie, with her large, graceful mouth smiling and showing her pretty teeth to best advantage. A low neck and short-sleeved green and white poplin is her dress, while her black hair, combed off from her forehead carelessly, is caught by a comb at the back and falls in curls on her shoulders. A prettier picture could not be wished for, as she looks around with sparkling eyes, eager for the dance to begin. There stands calm Dina, in snuff-colored silk, looking so immeasurably the superior of her partner, who, I fancy, rather feels that she is the better man of the two, from his nervous way of shifting from one foot to the other without saying a word to her. Nettie, in lilac and white, stands by the mantel, laughing undisguisedly at her partner rather than with him, yet so good-humouredly that he cannot take offence, but rather laughs with her. Lackadaisical Gertrude, whose face is so perfect in the daytime, looks pale and insipid by gaslight, and timidly walks through the dance. Stout good-natured Minna smiles and laughs, never quite completing a sentence, partly from embarrassment, partly because she hardly knows how, but still so sweet and amiable that one cannot find fault with her for so trifling a misfortune. At this point Lydia suggests, 
"'And Sarah, do you forget her?' "'I laugh. How could I forget? There she stands in a light blue silk, checked in tiny squares, with little flounces up to her knee. Her dress fits well, and she wears very pretty sleeves and a collar of applique. Lydia asks if that is all, and how she looks.' "'The same old song,' I answer. "'She is looking at Miriam just now. "'You would hardly notice her, "'but certainly her hair is well combed. "'That is all you can say for her. "'Who is she dancing with? "'A youth fond of dreams. "'Futile ones at that,' I laughingly reply. "'He must be relating one just now, "'for there is a very perceptible curl on her upper lip, "'and she is looking at him as though she thought she was the tallest.' Lydia dashes off into a lively jig. "'Ladies to the right!' I cried. She laughed, too, well knowing that that part of the dance was invariably repeated a dozen times at least. She looked slyly up. "'I am thinking of how many hands I saw squeezed,' she said. "'I am afraid it did happen once or twice. Eighteen months ago! What a change!' One who was prominent on such occasions, Mr. Sparks, they tell me is dead. May God have mercy on his soul in the name of Jesus Christ. I did not ask even this revenge. October 18th, Saturday. Last night Mother arrived from Clinton with Gibbs and Lydia, who had gone there the day before to get her to go to Baton Rouge. Clinton, October 19th. Sunday. What an unexpected change! I am surprised myself. Yesterday, as the Baton Rouge party were about leaving, Miriam thought Lily would be lonesome alone here with her sick baby, and decided that we should leave by the cars and stay with her until Mother returned. There was no time to lose, so dressing in haste we persuaded Anna to accompany us, and in a few moments stood ready. We walked down to the overseer's house to wait for the cars, and passed the time most agreeably in eating sugar-cane, having brought a little negro expressly to cut it for us and carry our carpet-bag. Three young ladies, who expected to be gone from Saturday until Wednesday, having but one carpet-bag between them. Can it be credited? But then we knew we had clothes here, and depended upon them for supplies, when we now find they are in the trunk and mother has the key. We walked aboard alone in the crowded train, and found ourselves in the only car reserved for ladies, which was already filled with a large party returning from Port Hudson, consisting of the fastest set of girls that I have seen for some time. Anna and I had to content ourselves with a seat on a small box between the benches, while Miriam was established on the only vacant one, with a sick soldier lying at her feet. The fast girls talked as loud as possible, and laughed in a corresponding style in spite of the sick man. They must have been on a picnic from the way they talked. One, in a short dress, complained that she had not seen her sweetheart, a pert little miss of thirteen cried, "'You can bet your head I never went to any place where I did not see one of my sweethearts.' One of about seventeen, a perfect beauty, declared she would die of thirst. "'So will I, and I don't want to die before I get a husband,' exclaimed her vis-à-vis. -vis. They evidently expected to produce an impression on us. 
At every brilliant remark, stupid, understood, they looked at us to see what we thought. All of them sat with bare heads in the strong light, an unfailing proof of la basse classe on steamers and cars. Every time my veil blew aside, they made no difficulty about scanning my features, as though they thought it might be agreeable. I must confess I was equally impolite in regard to the beauty, but then her loveliness was an excuse, and my veil sheltered me besides. While this young Psyche was fascinating me with her perfect face and innocent expression, one of her companions made a remark, one that I dare say is made every day, and that I never imagined could be turned into harm. My beauty uttered a prolonged, oh, of horror, and burst out laughing, followed by all the others. My disgust was unspeakable. Mock modesty is always evident. A modest girl could not have noticed the catch. The immodest, on the lookout for such an opportunity, was the only one who could have perceived it. Well, after all, no one can be perfect. This may be the single stain on my beauty, though I confess I would rather have any other failing than this almost. Putting this aside, I hardly know which I was most amused by— the giddy, lively girls to my right, or the two ladies to my left, who were as cross and ill-natured as two old cats, and railed unmercifully at the silly creatures behind them, and carried their spite so far as to refuse to drink, because the conductor, the husband of one of them, gave the young ladies water before passing it to their two elders. Didn't the poor man get it? She wouldn't taste a drop of that nasty, dirty drippings. That she wouldn't. Might have had the decency to attend to his kinfolks before them creatures. And why didn't he wait on those two young ladies behind her? He did ask them? Well, ask them again. They must want some. Poor Henpecked meekly passed the can again, to be again civilly declined. I confess the drippings were too much for me also, though I did not give it as my excuse. Mrs. Hen recommenced her pecking. Poor Mr. Hen at last surlily rejoined, For heaven's sake don't make a fuss in the cars, with an emphasis on the last word that showed he was accustomed to it at home at least. With my veil down I leaned against the window, and remembering Colonel Brough's remarks two nights before concerning cross people, I played his little philosopher for the remainder of the journey. At sunset we walked in at Lily's gate, and astonished her by standing before her, as she sat alone with her poor sick little Beatrice in her arms. End of Book Three, Part Eight